0: The Bain Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast. I was informed by myself yesterday that time travel is indeed possible. For those curious, the winning lottery numbers for tomorrow are 16, 54, 31, 9, 8 which is coincidentally the code for the nuclear football. A new planet was discovered in Solar System 39 Gamma. It is believed that the life forms present eat a combination of flames and calamari to survive. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now.
2: Welcome. To the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast, it's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane intern Jonathan Grabard, and I'm joined today by my fellow explorer and intern Ellie Heilman from Elon University. Today, first, say hello, Ellie. Hello. Today, we have been sent to Mars to complete our duties of mapping out the star systems as far away as possible from Tony Daniel, who has allowed us to take a break from the rack. On the plus side, I am now two inches taller. And on Mars.
1: This time we talk with Eric Flint and Walt Boyes, the editors of the Grantville Gazette, a collection from the popular Ring of Fire universe. After an inexplicable cosmic disturbance sends a West Virginia mining town to the middle of the Thirty Years War, history changes forever. In addition, we are joined by authors in the collection Bjorn Hassler, Carolyn Palmer, Gorg Huff, Griffin Barber, Paula Goodlett, Robert Waters, and Virginia DeMars.
2: And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Liaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. But first, here's the news.
1: It's time to announce the new eARCs for June. What is an eARC, you may ask? Well, it's an extraordinary apple rejuvenization circle, perfect for restoring apples that have sat for just a bit too long to the original pristine condition. Not really. An ARC is an electronic advanced reading copy that is available for purchase on Bain.com. You can get your fix for your favorite authors weeks, sometimes months, in advance. Only catch is they aren't quite ready yet. There will be typos. You have been warned but they are still well-written and worth every penny.
2: This month, we are rolling out two eARCs, Target Rich Environment by Larry Correa and Her Majesty's American by Steve White. Target Rich Environment is a short story collection of 14 action-packed tales full of demons, monsters, vampires, and cosmic horrors too terrible to name, and toss in an interdimensional insurance salesman thrown in for good measure. Her Majesty's American is an alternate future where the British Empire never crumbled. The spaceships of Her Majesty's Navy work to keep the spaceway safe. However, all is not quiet on the Western Front. The Sons of Arnold are posed to attack from within. And warships of the theocratic caliphate enter the system, prepared to do their worst to destroy the hated empire head on. Yet standing against the coming anarchy and tyranny, is one intrepid spy prepared to risk all for queen and empire.
1: Today we have the first part of a two-part podcast. The second part will be made available next week.
3: Hey, I want to welcome the editors and the authors of Grantville Gazette 8 to podcast. Hello, everyone.
4: Hi there. Hello. Hello.
3: Hello. 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 Hi. Hello.
4: Hi. How are
5: you?
3: Hey, we have a great gang here of uh of wonderful writers and all sort of <laughs> helmed by the uh creator himself, Eric Flint. Eric Flint's a modern master of alternate history fiction with three million books in print. And he's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling selling Riga Fire series, which we will be talking a lot more about. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius Alternate Roman History series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633 and 1634, part of the, um, part of the Riga Fire series and, and the Crown of Slave series within David Weber's honor verse and Eric's latest solo Ring of Fire novel is The Ottoman Onslaught. You have one slated for next year, right, Eric?
0: Yeah, it's uh, supposed to come out in April.
3: That'll be super cool. And for many years, Eric was a labor union activist, and now he lives near Chicago. Walt Boyes is the editor of the Industrial Automation Insider magazine, the editor of the Grantville Gazette, more germane to our discussion now a member of the 1632 Universe Editorial Board, formerly editor of Control Magazine, and associate editor of Jim Bain's Universe. Along with Joy Award, Walt is co-editor of Eric Flint's Ring of Fire Press. Walt is an active member of CEFWA as well. So um, Eric and, and Walt, um, how, what happens with these stories? So Grantville Gazette 8 is a collection of stories Uh, all set within this alternate history world that you, Eric, have created. So for some of the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, could you briefly recapitulate it?
0: Um, Yeah, we started the magazine uh, way back in 2003 as a – originally it was just an occasional – something we'd put together occasionally, and it was a semi-pro magazine. We didn't pay professional rates. Uh something I suggested to Jim as an experiment, and he thought it would be interesting. He, he didn't want to deal with it himself, so he lent me the money so I could set it up, and, and that's how the magazine got launched. In um, 2007, we decided we could turn it into a professional magazine with a regular publication schedule and paying professional rates as established by Science Fiction Writers Association. <clears throat> so we did that the first... Professional issue came out in May of 2007. Paula Goodlett was the editor at that point, and she continued to edit the magazine for God. How many years was it, Paula?
4: Total well, about ten. Uh, but I started back with Gazette three. Yeah. So okay. Don't ask me the years because it's been a while.
0: Yeah. So Paula edited it for many years, and then she basically, you know, got tired of it uh editing is is tiring work and besides this she wanna concentrate more more own writing. So uh she stepped ba uh, stepped down as the editor and I asked Walt to take it over and he did. That was about what, Walt three years ago? Two years yeah, ago? About yeah. three years ago um, I think um we started what Jim Bain did was he thought it'd be an interesting experiment to publish the first issue of the magazine as an actual paperback to see what would happen. So we did that, and it sold quite well. So we continued doing it, except that the next uh, magazine, uh, which is the Granville Gazette 2, went out in hardcover first, Uh, and it, it did quite well. Uh, We did gazettes one, two, three, and four, which were simply directly taking the magazine issue and turning it into a book. Uh, Once we got through four, however, we realized this wasn't going to work because the magazine was just steaming ahead much, much faster than the books could be published. So starting with Gazette 5, we shifted to a different format, which is the more traditional best-of format. And from that issue on, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and it'll continue uh, like this, what happens is that we select stories from about 10 to 15 issues in a magazine and put those together as an anthology. Um, That's the system we use now. The specific system we use is, uh, I, I don't actually read the stories in a magazine when they first come out in the magazine. Uh, I have a very strong attitude about that publishers should keep their noses out of magazines and let the editors run them. And I partly have that attitude because Jim drove me nuts when I was editing his magazine. <laughs> uh, which he had no excuse for doing because he'd been an editor himself at Galaxy Magazine. He knew damn good well you have to let editors run magazines. Uh, About the only decision a publisher really makes is to hire and fire the editor to begin with. And of course you pay all the bills. Anyway, so when it came time to put together Granville Gazette 8, uh, I asked Walt and Joy, the two of them, Joy's not directly connected with the magazine, but in practice uh, she and Walt are the two co-editors of Ring of Fire Press. So the two of them went through the stories in the 15 issues we were going to pick from, and I don't recall offhand which issues those were. Uh, and they selected out of it a initial, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, initial cut, we'll call it, of about twice as many stories as we were going to wind up with. And then I read them, and Consulting with them, I made the final decision on which stories would go into the actual anthology itself. And that's actually the first time I see the stories as a rule, is when I get it, the paper anthologies. Um, did I overlook anything? Walt? Um Only that I couldn't do the Gazette at all without
6: Bjorn
7: Hassler, who is the managing editor. And uh, and and you're right. Joy Ward did an awful lot of work picking the original complement of stories.
3: Now, could we take a step back momentarily? And I just wanted Eric to say again how this amazing sort of community of of really good writers—not not—I uh, mean, it's fanfic in a way, but it's also high quality stuff. Um, how this evolved—not too, you know—I don't—I don't want to get into a huge history of it. We've done that before on the podcast, but um, it's still—it's fascinating how these these talented people—you got them to write in your world, Eric. How did this happen? And it's not really your world anymore, is it? In a way.
0: Uh, no, it's 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 really very much. It is in the sense that if, a, if I'm the final arbiter, of a. Decision needs to be made, but that actually quite rarely happens. It's become a very collective enterprise. Just so people understand how unusual this is, this is, to the best of my knowledge, the only successful professional magazine ever, not just science fiction in any genre, that's based purely on a literary property. Uh, There have been magazines that have gone on for a number of issues based on media properties. Uh, There was a magazine called The Man from U.N.C.L.E., uh, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, all Mm -hmm. those. But this is purely based on a literary. And it's now been professionally published for 11 years, and it's chugging right along. It's a profitable This never happened that I know of, and nobody ever talks who can think of any other example anywhere. I think it's the
6: largest shared world universe um, in print ever.
0: I think that's quite possibly true, Um, and what makes it especially unusual is that normally what the way shared universes work is is everybody uses the same setting, but the stories don't interlock with connect with each other much um, they tend to each author tends to have a bailiwick so to speak within a common setting but the, the story lines of each work don't really interact with each other much that's not at all true with the uh, Ring of Fire series um, characters will first be. Uh, I once did an example using a character that Virginia first introduced. Um, I think it was Minnie Hugelmeyer, and um, you know, I just showed how it wove in and out—something she'd write, something I'd write, something to write together. Um, that's kind of how it works, and and um, I think what happens is partly I think we do attract. Um, Aspiring writers who who have some real talent, but the other thing that happens is because of the way we edit the magazine it it's it actually functions as a writer's workshop at the same time as a magazine um because of the way we do it we don't do it in the traditional way where if somebody submits a story across the transom and we either accept it or reject it instead we have people submit it to a ongoing discussion area in 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 uh bain's website and that gives people a chance to work on a story they can rewrite it uh eventually most of the stories aren't going to get selected but uh, the editors will oversee this process, and eventually they'll select out whichever stories they think are are ready for prime time. So it works; it works quite well. Yeah, it's uh, we have yet another Sterling
3: collection. Well, let's talk about some of the stories, shall we? Um, maybe we, let's start with Eric's story, just because <laughs> I just want to say the title: Descartes Before uh, the Whores and uh, that's not the only pun in this story.
0: Hey, Eric, in this
3: story, you are using the characters that came from Devil's Opera, right? That you and David Carrico wrote together.
0: Uh, Basically, yeah. I Uh, use those characters in one of my stories for Granville Gazette 7 also. uh, And David's used them for stories.
3: And then David pulled them.
0: And they are...
3: It's a mystery story within your universe. One of them is from modern uh, is from the modern day West Virginia town that got thrown back in time and the other is um is from contemporary times of the novel which is the sixteen thirty thirty six era at this point.
0: Um which is which?
3: Uh Chiesky is from the the future, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Byron Chiesky is the American from you know, from the Future and Gotthilf um uh, Hook is the uh, is the downtimer. So um, Rene Descartes
3: been kidnapped, maybe.
8: <laughs>
0: well, here's the, uh, many years ago, Laura Runkle, who's one of the members of the editorial board of the uh, magazine, um, came up with that pun. I don't remember what the context was. But um, the standard pun with Descartes is Descartes before the horse. Um, but she came up with the cart before the horse. And the minute I heard it, I swore I was someday going to write a story based on that title. Um, And I finally decided to do it. That story is kind of, as a purely literary exercise, it's actually pretty impressive because the plot pivots around five puns. Uh, every possible pun I could think of, uh, that, that had the same you know, they carved before. Um and that's actually pretty tricky. Uh making a plot work that you have to build around puns rather than the internal logic of the story itself. Uh I was pleased how it turned out. I mean it's kinda of lighthearted, but um it's Yeah, it's essentially century detective story. Rene Descartes you know, was alive at the time, but he wasn't famous yet. Um, he was just on the verge of starting uh, publishing the books that would eventually make him one of the most famous philosophers of all time. So he's unknown at the time to down timers, but of course... The uptimers, the Americans, know exactly who he is because even in West Virginia, in a small town, in West Virginia, René Descartes is going to be in a jillion books, and so that creates a kind of discord, or I don't know what you call it, a kind of disjunction of perception. And in the story, you find the downtimers like, "What is the big deal about this guy anyway?" Um, anyway, he gets kidnapped. Um, and the story just simply about these two detectives, uh, and a a um, a young woman, Elizabeth um uh, can you remember her last name, but she is a, a character who appears in my short novel Scarface in, in Ring of Fire Four. Um and she is this is back in Magdeburg and she is working for a rag um uh, uh, it's basically based on a National Enquirer. Um, it's a, a scandal sheet, and, and she's the one who does actually a lot of the investigating. Anyway, I uh, had a lot of fun writing it. And um, that's how the story came into existence. It's also part of a long tradition I have, which started with me and Jim Bain, and then after Jim passed away, uh, Tom Kidd, our artist, and I continue it, where the artist does the cover first, and then I fit the story to match the cover. It's kind of a enjoyable exercise, and I think keeps me sort of limber. <laughs> yeah, this is a great cover. Once again,
3: uh, Tom Kidd uh, does all these Ring of Fire covers, and I believe that he paints them, uh, that they, they actually are. Oil paintings.
0: They're great. I actually recently at a convention, I can't remember which one, Tom was the uh, artist guest of honor. He had a, a whole display of his work, quite, you know, a number of which are, are ring of fire uh, covers. And yeah, they're real paintings. You can buy them. Uh, they they are, are not cheap. They are not cheap. <laughs> uh, so but not you can get one a, a lot you know. cheaper,
3: just buy the book and you can look at it there.
0: Um, yeah, exactly.
3: On the dust jacket. So, uh one other thing about this story is the playing around with time that you always do with these stories in that um things are not going to be the same in the future uh of this world because people from the future have come back to the past. And in this case, the little leader of the town believes that she has uh she is perhaps going to have killed Descartes in the in the other world, right? Yeah, that's
0: uh, the Princess Christina. What happened in in real history was that when Descartes was middle-aged, about 50, thereabouts, um, by then she was Christina. uh, Gustav Adolf was killed at the Battle of Lutzen, and she was uh, inherited, and she was the Queen of Sweden. And she was an extraordinarily smart woman, but had all kinds of issues. And she invited Descartes to come move to Stockholm because she wanted basically to be tutored by, you know, a great philosopher. And he accepted because it was kind of an all expenses paid, you know, I mean, it it gave him a living. The problem was that she insisted on him meeting her at five in the morning and he would often have to, you know, walk through the Swedish winter in order to, you know, get to the palace. And that's usually blamed for the fact that he came down pneumonia. Now, whether it's actually what caused the pneumonia or not, who the hell knows. But that's the way it is in the history books. And so Christina, who in the series is about nine years old, she comes across this story, and she's very upset because you know, apparently she's responsible for killing this guy. Um, and her American uh, governess, uh, Carolyn Platts, <laughs> is frustrated with her because she's like a strangler, because the girls are, you know, kind of all worked up over it, even though she says, this happened in a completely different universe that's never going to happen in this one, so, you know, why, anyway, um, but that's what triggers off a lot of what happens.
3: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really fun story, and it's a it, it's a lighthearted mystery that has a cool, uh, cool little complex mystery plot. Um, speaking of historical characters, uh, Virginia DeVarcy, um we we meet Robert Herrick, uh, the poet, in your story, which was which is called historically well preserved. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to use Robert Herrick, and and can you introduce yourself briefly as well, well, Virginia?
4: Yes, I will. Uh, I'm Virginia DeMarce. Uh, I've been an academic historian uh, all of my life. This particular story was a great deal of fun because in a way it was homage to a few years when I was dealing with children at home, and was only working part-time as a kind of general gopher for the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers, in the context of which I became reasonably well acquainted and frustrated with many people devoted to the cause of historic preservation. Uh, The story also folds together As Eric said, various types of things that are shared in the universe. It features Valita Riddle, who was prominent in our collection of Brillo stories that Paula Goodlett invented. I borrowed the two Englishmen from Karen Offord's uh, story about getting smallpox vaccine out of England. And then I threw uh, Robert Herrick into the mix as a kind of illustration of what the life of the English clergy was like when a position as a clergyman was really the only practical way for a poet to support himself, whether he was religiously inclined or not. So basically I took elements from a variety of things and threw them into the stew on the issue of getting a some kind of quasi-permanent Episcopalian clergyman in Grantsville, spearheaded by leader Riddle, the only kamikaze Episcopalian in the United States which grandchild happened to transfer back.
3: A lot of this story is about pastor selection, which is a very interesting uh, plot device to pick.
4: Well, uh, Warren Hassler manages to write stories about biblical text interpretation. I don't see why this would be any other.
0: What were you say, Eric? I'm sorry. Well, I, there's <laughs> the, the interconnections are more complex even than this, because... Um, I had two motives in picking a story. Uh, one is it's a good story. The other, though, was uh, more selfish. Uh, I'm developing my own subplot that that um, starts figuring prominently in the Ottoman onslaught, where the small Episcopalian the Episcopal Church that came through the Ring of Fire—it's quite small. There weren't very many Episcopalians in Grandville—is becoming the channel. It's the church that Gretchen Richter chose to belong to when when Gustav Adolf basically gave her kind of an ultimatum, saying, you know, he you, you know, if you're going to be governor of Saxony, you have to belong to some religion, because I'm I'm damn well not going to have you know a governor who's you know who's not affiliated with some denomination. And she was raised a Catholic, but for reasons that go back into the story, she's. She's um, disaffected with the Catholic Church. and But on the other hand, she's not very fond of most Protestant churches. And Episcopalians sort of come the closest to keeping a lot of the Catholic tradition she likes without being Catholic. So she converts and becomes an Episcopalian. Well, this puts what Virginia described as samurai Episcopalianism <laughs> on steroids. And it's going to be, I think, quite Entertaining to see how the Episcopal Church evolves in, especially in Saxony and, and then in Silesia, as a church that is very, very, very unlike the uh, Episcopal Church that people think of. Um, so anyway, that's part of the reason I, I brought the story in because uh, uh, it gives some of the, it provides some of the background, some of the things I'm doing.
4: For bringing in Herrick. I just wanted to make a little bit of fun of those 17th century poets who had damsels dancing daintily on dewdrops in the spring. And I had to write the sentence in which Herrick reflects to himself as he is spending six months in exile in Grantville dealing with the local parish that real women had a tendency to trudge through slush in sturdy boots. They just didn't measure up to his imagination. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Laud makes him get married at the end to a sensible Episcopalian widow.
3: One of the great things, I mean, you really develop Perry's character in here, and one of the fun things about him is he's such a damn snob.
6: Well, of course.
3: He really thinks he he's better than these people. Is this based on Herrick's actual character, or did you just sort of think, yes. well, you know, he would be? No. So,
4: yes. It, when I do historical, as I say, I'm a historian. When I do historical people, I keep them just as close as I can to their actual <coughs> character, and I use as much as I can of direct quotes from their writings.
3: Yeah, I see that you have uh, yeah, that you have actually done that with with the Herrick character. It's really a story about women who are getting something done uh, in the way that they can with the power that they have, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Because Herrick's
3: not. Herrick is the is it's what's being done to, is the guy that's being done to here.
4: Yeah. <laughs> In real congregations, that is not in an infrequent situation.
3: Well, I can attest to that. Well, let us uh, let's talk to Griffin about uh, Bank on It, Griffin Barber. This is a heist uh, story of sorts, um, and you're a cop, right? Yes, I am. Tell us a little bit about your background, and and tell us a little bit about how the story. Um, I believe it it takes place in Geneva, right? Uh, how it, yes, it, how it came about.
6: Yeah. Well, I uh, I happened to spend uh, part of my youth in Geneva, Switzerland, um, and uh, so that was kind of the right-what-you-know aspect of it. Uh, yes, I've been a cop for, uh, geez, 18 years now, um, and I wrote this story back when Paula Goodlett was uh, the, uh, the lead editor at uh, the uh, magazine, and she was gracious enough to accept it. But uh, the kind of the funny thing about how it all came about was I uh, – Uh, is kind of how people get um, brought in and it's now to its third and fourth generation of uh, of, uh, uh, degrees of separation from Eric. So uh, I met Chuck Gannon at uh, World Fantasy about seven or eight years ago. Uh, he read some of my stuff uh, that I just posted on a blog and said, "Hey, you know, you ought to write for this Grantville Gazette." And I kind of poo pooed the idea because I was a novelist, yada yada yada, that kind of thing. And he came back the next year when I still hadn't sold anything and uh, said, "Hey, how's that going for you?" <laughs> so I turned around and uh, I turned around and uh, you know sucked it up and read uh, 1632. I was already familiar with eric from his work with uh uh, dave drake on the belisarius series which i quite enjoyed but i uh i read the 1632 and i went okay i can i can maybe work with this and i did some studying up and i wrote the short story and i i wrote about 90 percent of the story but i couldn't get the technical aspect because me dumb cop me not have science background And uh, I needed the MacGuffin, the science MacGuffin, to kind of come through for me. Um, So the next time Chuck asked me where the heck my story was, uh, I said, well, I can't get any help from anybody about this science question I have, and he Uh, rallied the troops, and Rick Boatwright, who is a common resource for many of the uh, authors in the 1632 universe, uh, totally helped me out and solved my my question and and, uh, helped me through finalizing the story, and it was the first short story I ever uh, submitted, and Paula was, uh, like I said, gracious enough to buy it. So, uh, and then I Shortly after that, I, I stayed, made my second, third, and fourth sales uh, to the Grantville Gazette and qualified for CIFWA, and then I got a novel with Eric. Uh, 16, which
3: is Issue of the Mugals, yes, which was yep. out last year. Then It's going to be out in the uh, mass yep. market, or is, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell us about Gervais, uh, who is a great character, uh who reminds me a lot of uh, maybe a Donald Westlake uh, villain or someone like that. But he's well, stuck I'm, with I'm this, a, this real snob of a Frenchman to start with.
6: Well, the Savoyard, he's actually, yeah, he's, just, he's more of a northern Italian to our modern sensibility. But yeah, the Savoyard is from the Piedmontese, uh, the, the area that's now Switzerland and uh, uh, northern northwestern uh, I- Italy. Anyway, he, uh, uh, Vicario is the, the main bad guy. Uh, I So living in Geneva, I had been around for a number of the celebrations of the Escalade, which they hold every year, which is celebrated with cauldrons of uh, chocolate and stuff like that for uh, kids and things like that. Uh, whereas a what happened was that a woman, and I can't remember her name, the uh was trying to... Uh, uh, reconquer his lost uh, city and went back to uh, Geneva and tried to take it in a night attack, a sneak attack and the uh, troops that uh, uh, attacked were disavowed by that Savoyard Duke and uh, so they basically were all executed uh, without being without the remedy of having a ransom and that kind of thing. So Vicario is a, is a jerk and an ass but he kinda has his reasons for doing that, which I always like to explore.
3: It's it's fun. Uh Gervais is uh it, it is a sly fellow, but he's not he's not the perfect thief. And there's also your uh your spy who your spy in training, whose yeah. name I can't remember, but he's a fun character Bertram. in the story as well.
6: Bertram, Bertram Wyman, yeah. He's uh, yeah. a distant relation to the uh the Sephardic uh Jews that have been uh Connected with the uh, uh, with Grantville since it's coming across time.
3: Well, it's a fun, it's a great fun caper story and with some really strong characterization. Um,
6: yeah, I I, I en- enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed writing it quite a bit, and because the, the cathedral is is very much uh, dominant in in Geneva. If you go into the old town, which I hung around a lot in, and drank a lot in, and generally made an American of myself in. <laughs> Um so how it was easy for me to be able to include it.
3: How old um, were you from, when you z- lived in Geneva?
6: from sixteen to twenty
3: one? So you really know the place.
6: I try to, yeah. I, I, I like to think I do. I'm sure I know very I know very little about the actual historical politics. That was one of the challenges for me was to try and figure out the because uh, it was ruled by a council uh for a long period of time after uh, uh Calvin uh passed away. Um, So there wasn't a whole lot of, like, there weren't a lot of people that stood out uh, in the historical record. And and while I speak French, I read it very, very poorly and very, very slowly. So uh, that was a challenge for me
3: as well. Well, uh, answered well in this story at least. Um, So Bjorn Hassler, um, you're going to have to probably be bold. Yeah, uh, I'm married to German. I still can't say it right. Uh, your title? Um.
7: Uh, I'm I'm going to say Bibelgesellschaft, but Virginia is welcome to correct me.
4: <laughs> that is correct, Bibelgesellschaft. Yeah,
7: uh, and
3: this is a riveting story, a really fun sort of action-filled story that's all about uh, something like hermeneutics or something like that, right?
7: Uh, textual criticism, actually.
3: Oh, okay. Can you explain what these people are after? Uh,
7: There are some students who um, started out in a fight at school because they were working from uh, different uh, texts of the Bible. And uh, after the fight got sorted out, they found out that their copies were actually different. Uh, They were based on different manuscripts. So, they are recreating uh, the Deutsche Bibelgesellschaft from Uptime, which is the organization that publishes uh, the uh, compiled Greek New Testament.
3: The idea is to get the most accurate uh, biblical translation available so everybody's yes. sort of on the same page in all these religious argumentations. Right. And our, our heroine, or at least our viewpoint character, is Kater- Katharina. Who is who is she?
7: Uh, Katharina Meissner is a uh, high school student now at, at Grantville High School, but she's a down-timer. And uh, she is brethren, what, what we would call Anabaptist. So they have been trickling into Grantville since basically the beginning of the series because they have freedom of worship there.
3: So she is... She's a downtimer. timer.
7: Yes. Mhm.
3: And she is probably pretty good at basketball, but she doesn't really feel like doing that because she's more interested in in, um, in figuring out what is actually the right Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New Testament.
7: Right. Uh, she's just working on the New Testament at the moment. Um, later on, she she starts trying to pick up a little bit of Hebrew, but. Um, at this point in the in the story, is, uh, she's uh, taking Greek in the high school. They're offering that because it's simply expected at university uh, in that time period. And
3: what are the, what are some of the? So they go on a journey, and some people are trying to stop them uh, from from being up. Where are they going? What is going to be accomplished at this uh, meeting?
7: They're headed to the University of Vienna, which is about 30 miles or so from Grantville. And they are trying to recruit um, downtime scholars to help them. They're specifically looking for um, Johann Gerhardt uh, to get on board. He is the top Lutheran theologian alive in the time period. And they uh, they meet up with... Uh, another student who's checking out the University of Jena, his name is uh, Johannes Musaeus. He is a historical downtimer, and he, he becomes the leader of the uh, Lutheran students within the Bible Society.
3: And who is opposed to them? Why would anybody want to stop them from doing this?
7: Well, uh, we were talking about borrowing characters. I borrowed uh, Pastor Holtz from Virginia. And Holt has been the leader of a very hyper Orthodox faction of Lutherans uh, within Grantville, um, all downtimers. And he does not like the cooperation he sees in the Bible Society between Anabaptists, Lutherans, and Catholics. And he would just assume that they all just. To what his version of the Lutheran Church tells them to,
3: and he is quite willing to uh to oppose them physically if he has to
7: yes uh he he does that in a number of stories by different authors over the course of the series. What a
4: jerk uh, <laughs> <laughs> remember remember in this period. There was the phrase "odium theologicum," the willingness of theologians to feud with one another, and it was not limited to verbal and written feuding. It often spilled over into riots.
3: People took these things very seriously. Well, it's a it's a really fun story, and uh, it's certainly. Uh certainly brought to life a portion of bible scholarship that I did not think could be brought to uh, to life it it made it fun so um well let uh, let's move on to robert waters, uh the heirloom, which is' a, it's another very it's moving story um, and really a look inside of two um, two viewpoints, one uptime and one downtime, particularly the uptimer who who hasn't really assimilated, who hasn't found a way to fit in. Yeah, um, who is, what is her name? Ellen Lou Rice. Yeah. Can you tell us about Ella this? Ella Lou probably? Rice. Yeah. And tell us a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. Well, just uh, quickly. A little about yourself as well, please.
8: Yeah. Um, I'm Robert Waters. I, um, in my day job, I work in a gaming company. I've worked in the gaming industry since 1994. Um, right now, I'm working for a company called Breakaway Games. What we do is what they call serious games. We develop and design games for uh, medical training, uh, usually, and uh, also uh, uh, financial financial training, and you know, any anybody that comes to us that has some cash that needs gaming and simulations in order to help train their employees or uh, members in some capacity or another. That's what I do in my day job. So, um, the heirloom, yeah, basically, what the, what this sto- story is about. Is um, there's an uptime family called the uh, Rice family. Uh, John Rice, the father, Elilu Rice, the mother, and their son, Clyde Rice. Now, they're the only three uh, members of this family that came through the Ring of Fire. Uh, the rest of the family was left uptime. So it's a split family. Uh, and when the story begins, John Rice, who is a World War II veteran, uh, has already died. He passed away in, in, in 1635, and of course uh, she, he survived. Then, of course, by his wife and his son. And Ella is not coping well with the uh, with coming through the ring of fire. And she's not like some of the other characters in the series that have really made a name for themselves, or rich, or they're famous, or both. You know, she's miserable. She just doesn't like it. And so, and now she's just lost her husband. So, you know, what in the world is she going to do? So what she decides that she's going to do to try to find some meaning in her life and some purpose is to take this medallion or this heirloom that her husband got in World War II from a German soldier and give this medallion back to the family, the ancestors of this German soldier from World War II. Um But the genealogy search is just virtually impossible, you know. It's just, uh, there's no good records. There's, you know, displacement of families, war and everything. It's just, it's near impossible to be able to try to trace this heirloom back to its origination. Uh, And the the soldier in World War II, the German soldier that basically helped her husband survive um, the Battle of the Bulge, said that it's around 300 years old or so so she figures it's probably right around that time where it might have been made uh... so she can't find the family but what she does know is that the heirloom came from a small town called Darmstadt which is happened in Darmstadt Germany which happens to be it was a town in the 17th century it was a town in World War II so she decides that you know in order to you know as, a, as sort of an altruistic gesture she will give this heirloom to the town as sort of like a thank you for uh, giving the world at some point a a son who will save her husband from dying, you know, in the freezing cold of, uh, you know, of of the Battle of the Bulge. So that's what the story's about. It's about a woman who's trying to find some purpose and some meaning in her life now that she's in a situation where she, you know, has just been sort of forced into.
3: You know, we've gotten these great stories about kind of loser uptimers like Bernie, um, who uh Paul and Gord write about who who really transformed their lives when they got this sort of second chance by being thrown back into the past. But she she hasn't quite done that. She got cut off from her family, right? I mean she's she's felt unmoored.
8: Yeah. Um yeah, like I said, um a a lot of larger the largest most of her family was left up time. I mean they just they do it just a total uh, shock to them. It's a cultural shock. And she's, you know, she's she's uh, an elderly lady. She's in her 70s. You know, she's pushing close to 80, I think, herself. And so, you know, she's just, she's not going to get used to it, you know. It's just not something that is just going to be able to just go right in and just do it. She misses CNN. She misses the uptime amenities. She misses them all. She misses all these things. But she's stuck, you know, and just like everyone else that came through the ring of fire. And they've got to find... Some way to cope with the situation, and that's what she does. She she tries to, and so she she you know she takes this amulet or this medallion to the the town to to try to find some peace, um, uh, yeah. you know, lift the situation. Now,
3: there's some really cool World War II uh, battle scenes in this as well because she is recounting for for. Remembering what her husband has told her about what's good, did you do some research on this as well It's kind of cool that that you guys can work in other histories as well
8: well yeah I was that was one of the parts that it was a little uh, to me kind of a little tricky in how to structure the stories so that I could jump between times because i because i start they start the story in sixteen twenty six actually prior to the Ring of Fire, and then I jump into the you know I guess our modern time or the current age which is the sixteen thirty And then I jump ahead of time, like you say, when she she is recounting the story that her husband tells about meeting this German soldier. And so I had to, it was was a a challenge, a bit of a challenge to try to uh, jump from time to time to time and try to make it all work. And uh, it it just so happens that around the time that I was thinking about writing this story, um, I happened to be watching the uh, HBO show Band of Brothers. And there are two episodes of that um, series that are in uh, the Ardennes, and uh, a lot of foxholes, a lot of coals, a a lot of death and misery. And I thought to myself, this might be an interesting place to see if I could put a story. Actually, to tell you the truth, the story was inspired by reading 1635, The Bavarian Crisis, there's a scene in that book where um, Mary Simpson, I believe it is, is sort of thinking back or reflecting on her life as the wife of a naval officer. And to me it was very touching and, and very honest sort of a, uh, a an introspection. And I thought to myself, well, there's got to be other ladies, uh, uptimers, who have come through who might be able to find some kind of, have that kind of, Relationship or a moment with with their um, as being you know the wife of a of an officer or a soldier, so that's really where the germ of the story began. Yeah,
3: well, it's a it's a really touching and uh, and and moving, and it's got a, a really cool finish to it as well.
4: Um, yeah, I don't want to spoil that. We don't want to. <laughs> no,
3: no, no, <laughs> no. It. Uh, but it, but it's it's excellent uh, excellent work.
1: That was the first part of a two-part interview. The next part will be available next week.
5: This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Galen and Corval's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corville's traders, under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Oskalan, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to corvilles unpleasantness with the department of the interior but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it and here is the latest entry in sharon lee and steve miller's alliance of equals
9: paddy hunched under her bowl shivering and sick She remembered the feel of bone snapping beneath her hand, giving before her kick. She had never, her first kills, she had intended to kill both men. She had carried forth on her intentions to success and survival. And she never wanted to be forced to do so again. He could find it in him to be angry at Inky, despite his understanding of the conditions she labored under. She could have left the Admiral out of the equation, but, well, no, maybe not. Tolly sighed and scrubbed his hands over his face as the drying cycle came on. He hoped it hurt her what she'd done. He thought it did hurt her. Inky was a pro. She knew the conditions of the Admiral's birth. His first conscious act had been to kill a ship full of sentient beings. Killing would always be an option for him, so long as he could convince ethics and protocol that it had been done to preserve himself or in defense of his crew. It was the job of the Admiral's mentors to teach him that there were alternatives, better alternatives. And what does Inky do? but set up a situation in which the Admiral could claim self-defense in the murder of a mentor. Damn the woman. The dryer shut off, and he stepped out of the fresher, padding the couple of steps into his quarters and picking up the pants he'd left across the bunk. For himself, personally, it hardly mattered who killed him, so long as he didn't come into the care of the school beforehand. But for the harm done to the Admiral, yeah, he could be, he was, angry. If Inky, as was probable, had set a mandate for the Admiral to return to her, or wait at a certain location, she might even intend to protect him. But Inky wasn't reliable. She knew that. He pulled the sweater over his head, sighed, and just stood there in his quarters, arms hanging at his side. Suddenly, he laughed, because really there wasn't any choice but the one the Admiral offered. He, tallance Beric Jones, greatest of the age or not, was a mentor, and he knew what was due to his student and what was due to the universe and to biologic life. He also knew right down in the deep core of him just exactly what a person was capable of doing when they wanted their freedom above everything else. "Stop!" Sean said sharply. His arm he dared not look at his arm. Instead, he enclosed the pane and sealed it away. "Open to me," Tarona Rusk sounded calm and faintly disappointed. It does not have to be a rape, little healer. Only surrender. I cannot surrender, he told her, projecting honesty as strongly as he dared. I am of Corval. Try to force me and you create resistance in equal measure to your demands. If you wish an examination, I suggest that we must find another way. She considered him with a sapient eye. You are now willing to become my student? I am willing to allow you to examine me and the resources available to me, he said, keeping his voice smooth with an effort. Gods, what damage had she done him? The pain was already seeping through his seals like blood through paper. He dared a glance downward and grit his teeth. Those would scar. All he had to do was live long enough. It is a poor teacher who does not also learn from her students, Tirona Rusk commented. How would you have us proceed to a solution that profits us both? I suggest that we comport ourselves as healers, he said. I will extend to you one single line, as you will extend one single line to me. We will allow the lines to meet and to co-mingle. Thus, a fraction of your energy becomes part of me, while a small fraction of my energies become part of you. She smiled suddenly, wide and delighted. In fact, we would learn to trust each other. Exactly, he said. Once trust is established, and we know each other a little better, an examination, even an intervention, may go forth. I commend you. This is a valuable suggestion. For you know that I would have you trust me above all things. He bowed his head slightly and let her read meekness in him and a certain well-hid awe of herself. We shall make this attempt, she announced. I extend the grace of goodwill to my newest student. He saw it, with inner eyes, a cobalt thread, chaste and demure. Gently, he extended his own thread, also demure, and perhaps a little inclined to waver. The energies met and mingled. He tasted steel and vinegar, shivered with her need to hold and possess. He heard her sigh as his thread reached her senses, tempting her with compliance and a sweet desire to obey. She was quick. Very nearly, she was too quick. She jerked on her extended thread, but they were enwrapped now, and he had no wish to disengage. Treachery! She snapped, the lash came, striking his cheek this time, even as he thrust his will down the fragile linkage, past their joining point, and into the sear and tangled pattern of torona Rusk. Brittle threads scratched and burned him. He ignored them, stretching his will wide, wide, wider than ever he had attempted, until at last he enclosed the whole sticky mass whereupon he snatched all of it, all of them, into heel space. The security guard is with the Yos Galen. The language was liaden, the mode between comrades, perfectly audible to Paddy's ears as she crouched beneath her bowl. And yet, said a second voice, we have two dead, efficiently so, and a suite that is empty of else. They had searched the suite, she had heard that too. It was rather inefficient, having to depend only on her ears. She would have liked to see this new pair of enemies, so that she might have identified them to port security. In fact, it came to her that, the bowl being her construction, she might modify it thus. Then it came to her that the bowl was not, precisely, her construction. It had felt to her as if she had reached out and snatched the very bowl from the table beside her bunk. Her thought, some way stretching it until it was large enough to cover her. Or perhaps she had shrunk somehow in order to fit beneath. In any case, she told herself, you don't know enough. Best to stay hidden until they give up and go. However, they seemed in no hurry to go. She heard them moving about again, soft floofs that may have been cushions landing on the carpet after having been thrown from chairs. And if they thought she might be hiding behind the chair cushions, then they must be as stupid as the Department of the Interior. The halfling has abilities, the first voice said. It is the reason we are sent to find her, not merely because she is the Yosgalin's heir and may be used to control him. Paddy drew a careful breath. We, however, do not have abilities, the second voice pointed out. How if the air has already flown out the window? Flying is not so usual a thing. And the air is young, after all. Perhaps we might think of a more common subterfuge, such as any halfling might employ, hiding for an instance. These people did not sound at all stupid, Patty thought, wrapping her arms around her knees. More the pity. Let us quarter the room, the first voice said, and see what we may find. The Dramliza will not be pleased if we do not bring the air or her body. You recall what she did to Elphasic. You make an eloquent point. Let us, as you say, quarter the room.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's all for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to the podcast theme composer, Ruth Jukowicz. And the complete breakdown of quantum mechanics across five solar systems, plus thanks adoring fans and maybe a parade to editors Eric Flint, Walt Boys, and authors Bjorn Hassler, Carolyn Palmer, Gorg Huff, Griffin Barber, Paula Goodlett, Robert Waters, and Virginia DeMars from the Grantville Gazette.
2: Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And as always, keep reaching for the stars.